happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. When I was in middle school, math was cool. I know, I know. Math still is cool. One of the ways my educators impressed upon me the glory of arithmetic was through a community event called Math Field Day. Every year in our county, the various schools scattered throughout would assemble the best of the best math students. They would comprise the math field day team for their particular school. And every year, in a Super Bowl-like event, the teams would compete against each other for the prize of being the best school at mathematics. Each school would select its team through a rigorous test. You just had to score the best on an exam. And I'll never forget how I heard of one particular math field day legend. It's a student who, ironically, his name has been forgotten, but his feats have not. You see, this student was the only one in all the history of math field day to get a 100% on his exam. According to the test, he was the best and the brightest. Yet, as teachers began working with him to hone his mathematical prowess, it became apparent that though he was intelligent, he was less than mediocre with numbers. What had happened, the questions began to be asked. How, how did he pass through the test and end up on the math field day team? And as the questions were raised, he came with a response. Magic. Magic? Yes, he said. It's as easy as Abba Kadabba. A, B, B, A, C, A, D, A, B, A. He had just filled out the exam bubbles to spell abacadabra over and over again. And as chance would have it, I haven't figured out the probability, it matched the answer key exactly. Tests are designed to show what we know, to reveal what's gotten into us. This morning, we come to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and the testing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word in Greek that is translated temptation is also equally translated as testing. It can be either way. The word holds both concepts at the same time. Jesus here in chapter 4 will be tempted and tried. What is in Christ's heart will be revealed through this test. And the good news for us, and this is your main idea this morning, is that Jesus passes the test and proves himself to be God's faithful son. Main idea, more concisely, is that Jesus passed the test, and we need to know that we too must be ready to be tested. 
with that set up, would you stand up in honor of reading God's holy and perfect word? Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truth on our hearts. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning confessing that we are full. Our lives are full. Full of entertainment, full of appointments, full of events, full of busyness, such that there is not much room left for your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would empty us this morning that we might be filled by your Spirit, moved by your Spirit, empowered by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit into this place, into us, and into my voice, so that as your word is proclaimed, you would be heard. Fill us, Lord, this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to this passage, it is essential that we understand it has been laid atop the foundation of an Old Testament background. Our text is built on the context of Israel in the wilderness. 
Matthew has been taking us here. Remember, he wants to prove to us that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham who brings the blessing of God to all nations. And so he shows us in chapter 1 that Jesus has the right pedigree. In chapter 2, he shows us that Jesus fulfills the right prophecies. And in chapter 3, he shows us that Jesus has the right endorsements. The Holy Spirit anoints him as king, and God the Father proclaims, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That word Son alerts us to the fact that Jesus is king, and it alerts us to the fact that Matthew has set Jesus up for us, not just as a new sort of Moses, but as as a true Israel. Like Israel, he is called out of Egypt in chapter 2. He comes out of Egypt. Now in chapter 3, he's passed through the waters of baptism as Israel was baptized in the Red Sea. And now he has entered into the wilderness where he will be tempted and tried. Matthew is doing this. And we must recognize it or we will miss his primary point which is that Jesus is God's faithful son. That's what's being tested here. The relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Will Jesus submit himself to the Father, or will he assert himself in his own will and his own ways? Will he be faithful where Israel was not? Will he obey where Adam did not? There are other keys, key words that help us to see this fact. So, so you do see in verse 17 of chapter 3, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, we read of Israel, God speaking to Moses here, Exodus 4, 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me deliberate connection. We also see in the first couple verses, key words, key locations. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's a flashing word in the Bible. The wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So two, two key words here, wilderness and 40 days and 40 nights. This recalls for us Israel's wandering in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years. We already read it this morning, but I want to read it to you again from Deuteronomy chapter 8, those first six verses. It explains what's happening in the wilderness. You'll also note that every quotation Jesus gives to the devil during these trials comes from Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8, which are spoken to Israel while they are in the wilderness and on the precipice of entering into the promised land. This is what Moses says, Deuteronomy 8.1, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, so that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. So that, here's the purpose, so that he might humble you. Testing you to know what was in your heart. 
whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. And he let your hunger grow. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out. Your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then, in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. This is the context underneath of our text. Jesus is reenacting Israel's time in the wilderness. The whole point is that where Israel failed over and over again, Jesus succeeds. Where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. What we see here is that Jesus Christ overcomes temptation and is fulfilling all righteousness. He is qualifying himself to be our substitute, to be our Savior. So we come to his temptations, and the question before us is, where is Jesus' heart? Well, we know what Israel's heart was. It was sinful. They failed the test. The exile proves that. We know where our hearts are. We are sinners. But Jesus, how does he stand up when tested and tried? And so we come to the first test. The spirit intends to test Jesus. The devil intends to tempt Jesus into sin. And so we go to his first class, Cooking 101. Look with me at verse 4. Sorry, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. This is an interesting temptation. The devil shows up. Jesus is hungry because he's a human being, right? He's not Clark Kent. I always thought Clark Kent, just worst alter ego ever. It's just, just Superman with glasses on. He, it's clear that Superman is not human at all. He just throws glasses on sometimes. He's still faster than a speeding bullet. His experience is not at all like that of a normal human. Jesus is not Clark Kent. Jesus is not God in disguise. Jesus is truly man. Like you and me. He shared in our experiences. He was hungry. And so the devil comes to him and says, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, and we both know that you are, and if God fed Israel in the wilderness with manna, they picked it up from the ground as if it was stones, shouldn't you, as God's Son, be able to eat? Go ahead and whip up some sourdough with some butter on top from these stones. You're God's son. Feed yourself. 
Note, too, how tailored to Jesus this temptation is. You and I are not tempted to turn stones into bread. Satan knows just where to go. He asks Jesus to make himself a feast in the wilderness. And we, we know Jesus turns bread, he multiplies loaves later on, he does food miracles. And so the question comes, why would it be wrong for Jesus to just go full Gordon Ramsay here and make himself a feast? It's because he must be tempted in every way as you and I are in order to be qualified to be our faithful high priest. He must learn obedience through what he suffers so that he can stand before God on our behalf. He must do what Israel failed to do. He must depend not on himself or on his grumblings. He must depend on the word of the Lord. He he must prove that he's not going to trust in turning stones into bread, but in the Lord providing whenever he's ready. Jesus will not violate the Father's will in this test. He will depend on him, and Jesus will not disqualify himself from the role of our high priest by eating bread or turning stones into bread. Hebrews chapter 4 And verse 17 says this, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you understand the stakes here for Jesus? If he turns the stones into bread so that he can satisfy his own hunger rather than depending on his father, the whole salvation scheme is is torn up. That's the stakes here. Our reconciliation with God. If Jesus eats here, if he changes stones into bread, his body cannot be as bread broken for us. If he eats here, his blood cannot become blood that is shed for us. If Jesus eats in the wilderness... His people can never come to his Father's table. He does not turn the stones to bread. He answers with a word from the Word. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Because of Jesus' commitment to depend on his Father, we now depend on him as our merciful 
and faithful high priest who brings us into God's presence, allows us to eat at his table, enables us to to sing those words, your blood has washed away my sin, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. It's good news. Jesus didn't eat so that we can eat at peace with the Father and with one another. It's good news, Christian. You should rejoice and delight in this. Non-Christian, I want you to know that there is an open seat at the Father's table. And you can come to that seat through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the bread of life. The one who eats of him by faith will never hunger again. Come, be satisfied in Christ. He's the only one that can fill all of your needs. Jesus passes cooking 101 and goes on to the next course, which is Bible 300. Look with me at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... If Jesus will quote the Bible, so will the devil. It's not as if the the devil is a vampire and the Bible is garlic or a silver bullet. No, the devil is good with the word. The devil says, it is written. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You see what he's saying? He takes him to the the temple, this high place, whether in vision or in reality, and he says, jump off, take a leap of faith. Because if you're the son of God, and you are, if you jump off, God will send angels to protect you. You can be assured of his love, assured of his plan for you. You can prove to me that you really do believe the word that you just quoted. I don't, I don't think I'm supposed to have a favorite temptation of Jesus. This might be it, though. It's, just, it's so darn clever. Jesus quotes the Bible, and the devil says, Whoa, you believe the Bible? Here's Psalm 91 for you. Prove it. Put your money where your mouth is. Obey the Bible. And I got to tell you, the devil's exegesis of Psalm 91 is on point. The heart of Psalm 91, it's written to those who take shelter in the shadow of the Almighty. And it holds out promises to God's people. It says that God will provide for them and will protect them when dangers come. the devil's application that is satanic. And what else would we expect? 
You see, the goal of the psalm is not to call God's people to, frankly, stupid behaviors. Not called to endanger ourselves. And the point of the psalm is not an invitation to arrogance, but to dependence. It is a common tactic of the evil one to pick up the sword of the Spirit and to turn it on God's own people so that we might sin against God, all the while thinking that we are obeying God's word. Jesus knows better. He, he sees, yes, that Psalm 91 is about protection and provision, but he also understands it's not a call for us to endanger ourselves on purpose, unnecessarily. It's not a license to try and manipulate God. That's exactly what Jesus says in his response. He says, verse 7, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16, which reads the same way but adds this, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, the first test, Israel went through the wilderness. They were given manna. They still grumbled against the Lord. They failed. This test is actually seeing if Jesus will test the Lord rather than trust him. And Jesus quotes a passage of Scripture that takes our attention back to Israel, again in the wilderness, at a place called Massa. Massa just means grumbling or complaining. And they were grumbling and complaining. You can read about it in Exodus 17. They were grumbling and complaining and they didn't have water. And they said, Moses, did you bring us out here so that we could die? They're ready to stone Moses. Moses calls out to the Lord and the Lord provides them water. And Moses names the place Massa because there the people said, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? And Jesus is saying, I am content knowing that the Father is with me. I don't need a spectacular sign or symbol for God to prove that he is with me. I will not pretend that I can force his hand or whistle for him to come to my aid as if he was a dog. I serve him, not the other way around. Jesus recognizes the play here. He will not look to an assurance of angels picking him up before he hits the ground. Rather, he's going to trust in the assurance God has already given him at his baptism by the Holy Spirit and the word of the Lord. It's a good word for us. Sometimes we're looking for God to just give us a sign that he's with us. We can just know that he's there. We should be reminded to look to God's word, to our own baptisms, and to remember that in Christ, he is well pleased with us. Jesus 
just like us, had to walk by faith, not by signs. I think obviously this passage shows us that we need to be careful when we come to God's word, both in how we understand it and how we apply it. We want to be a people who know this book. If Jesus needed to know this book, surely we do. He does not appeal to his own experience. He does not respond to the devil with clever syllogisms. He quotes the word. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Let us be a people of the book. One more thing before we move on to the next temptation. It is interesting that the devil quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, but he stops short of quoting verse 13. Which in my my sanctified imagination, Jesus could have gone this route too. When the devil stopped at verse 12, Jesus could have raised his eyebrows, allowed a grin to spread across his face, and said, go on. Let me read verse 13. You will tread on the lion and on the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Jesus is the snake crusher. He is the second Adam who's going to reverse the curse that came about in the garden. He is faithful Israel. And he will lead his people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. He knows his Bible. And so Satan's twisting of it does not get Jesus twisted up. And so we come to the next course, third and final one. The devil takes Jesus into political science 400. This temptation is all about kingdoms. Look with me at verse 8. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is the devil's best temptation. I don't think he knows just how good it is, though. The devil is very powerful, but he is not omniscient. He does not know that Jesus is going to go to the cross before taking up his crown. He does recognize that Jesus is God's promised king, David's son. And so what he wants to do is to get David's son, God's king, to bow down to him before going through all the suffering and trouble of conquering the world. He's holding out to Jesus a shortcut through suffering. He says, I am the prince of the power of the air. I am the God of this world. I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. 
no suffering required. All you have to do, Jesus, and this is what he's been after doing the whole time, is sever your ties to your Father. Worship me, and I will give you what you're after. You can be king, and I will be your God. How often we are tempted to cut such a deal with the devil. No suffering? Exactly what I want? Yes, you will be my God. The devil offers him a shortcut. No need to wait on the Lord. And we can't help but have ourselves transported back into the Exodus in chapter 32 where Moses is on that great mountain called Sinai receiving the words of the Lord. And he's up there for for how long? Forty days and forty nights. And when he comes down from the mountain, what does he find? The people, well, they got tired of waiting And they had begun worshiping a false god, a god of their own making. Brothers and sisters, waiting is always a testing. Waiting is always an opportunity for temptation. We... We so want to take control of our lives. We want what we want, and we, we want it right now. In our heart of hearts, we, we sing that song by Queen. I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. I wonder, where are you called to wait and to depend on the Lord right now? What strange wilderness has God set your feet in? Are you tempted to try and seize control in your anxiety? Friend, be still, take heart, and wait on the Lord. Jesus doesn't take the bait here. He responds again with the word. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus will worship and serve only his heavenly Father. He will indeed have all the kingdoms of the earth, but only after bringing the kingdom of heaven with his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. Jesus will not take up the crown without the cross. He will follow the Father's plan kingdom of heaven will encompass 
all the kingdoms of earth. Jesus is ruling both right now. His kingdom is spreading. The promise of nations worshiping him is being fulfilled. His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Indeed, Jesus is succeeding right now where Israel failed. He, the the faithful Son of God, the true Israel, is bringing blessing to all nations. He's bringing peace with God to all who will repent and believe. Jesus is proving his heart to God. He, He comes through the wilderness test and he's passed it without any magic, but simple dependence on his Father. And look at, look at the results in verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I love this, those angels that were promised in Psalm 91 to protect and to provide for God's people, that Jesus refused to call upon by throwing himself off the temple, now they show up. In God's timing, he provides. He provides for Jesus with angels just like he did for the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. Remember, Elijah has called down fire from heaven. He's slaughtered all the prophets of Baal. He thinks that he has led Ahab to a repentance and to a revival But that monster in Ahab's bedroom, Jezebel, is not convinced. She tells Elijah that she will have his head. And Elijah begins making his way to the mountain of God. And on his way there, in his discouragement, he lays down beneath a broom tree and asks God to just take his life. And the Lord sends angels. He tells Elijah, rise and eat. And there's some Krispy Kremes at his head. And he eats, and he goes on the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus is being ministered to here by the angels, and they will strengthen him for his journey to Calvary's mountain where he will carry out the will of the Father. The consequences of these tests, of Jesus passing these tests, are myriad. But chief among them is him proving himself as faithful Israel and as God's faithful son, as the true and better Adam. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Adam failed the test. Jesus passes the test. And he passes all the promises of God onto all who trust in him. That's the main idea of this passage. That's the primary meaning of this passage. If we miss that Jesus is the true and better Adam, if we miss that Jesus is the true and better Israel, then we miss Matthew's point. It's easy to come to the Bible and look past Jesus to ourselves. Having said that, there are secondary meanings in this passage. There is an application for us. There are things we can learn from Jesus. We see that Jesus is the faithful son, and he sets a pattern for the faithful to live by when tested. Let me give you a handful of exhortations. First, if we are to stand up against trials and testing, we must trust God's providence. God's providence is his carrying out his will in the world. Remember back in verse 1, it is the Holy Spirit who leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We must be a people who trusts God's providence, no matter where his spirit sets our feet. Many Christians have Psalm 23 as their favorite. Remember how it reads? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now note this, it's not just that the shepherd is with him. What's it say? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The sheep has not wandered into the valley of the shadow of death by itself. The same shepherd that leads the sheep beside still waters leads the sheep into and through the valley of the shadow of death. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is free to lead us into sunshine and into shadow, into testing. We must trust God's providence and his purposes. Secondly, we want to prioritize obedience to God's will. Jesus has offered food to satisfy his hunger. And he says, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus is committed to obeying God's will, even over sustaining his own physical life. Friends, disobedience to God is worse than death. I wonder how different our lives would be if we treated sin this way. Would you rather die than sin against the God who made you? 
We want to prioritize obedience to God's will so that we will be ready to stand in the day of our testing. Next, we see that Jesus is tempted by the misuse of Scripture. But he's prepared. He knows Psalm 91 better than the devil does. Friends, do you know God's word that well? We prepare for testing and tailored temptations by knowing how we are most tempted and by knowing God's word. That might be a good exercise this afternoon. Get by yourself for a little while and consider what are the the sins that you are most drawn towards to prepare yourself to stand against them when they come. And then on the other hand, to just study God's word, to, to know it and to love it. Brothers and sisters, memorize scripture as an act of war. Because you are at war. This this gathering, it is the assembly of an army. Wherein we are receiving commands from our commander. Before going out on mission into the world. We want to know his word. We want to know how to obey him and how to please him and how to love him and how to walk according to his laws and statutes. Do you know him? Don't tell me that you know him and you don't know his word. That's how we know him. Hide his word in your heart. Memorize scripture as an act of war. Putting Bible in your mind is putting a sword in your hand and a gun in your boot. Prepare for testing. Lastly, Jesus is tested again and again, and yet he perseveres. Persevere when you are tested. God will prove true in the end. It is better to suffer than to sin. Count it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, knowing that your suffering is producing steadfastness of faith and ultimately Christ-like character in you unto the glory of God. As you endure wilderness tests, remember that God will provide when he's ready. This side of death or on the other side of the grave, he will provide. Be more willing to trust God's plan without knowing it than you are to call upon angels if you had the power. Jesus did have the power, and yet he refused. He refused to call upon angels to help him here, And he refused to call upon angels when he was arrested. Remember, Peter cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And Jesus says, don't you know I could call more than 12 legions of angels? But this is the will of my Father. And when Jesus is on the cross, he still has those same angels at his disposal. He needs only to say the word. But he remains silent even as he hears the the same temptation of the devil once more on the lips of men. 
Matthew chapter 27, verse 40. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even in this last and greatest test, Jesus does not call out to angels. Jesus does not give in to the temptation. Jesus gives up his life so that you and I might have life. And indeed, his father does deliver him. Not from the nails in his hands and in his feet. Not from the mocking. Not from the blood that was pouring from his veins. He wasn't delivered from any of it. He was delivered from the grave. He was delivered unto heaven. He is being delivered all the nations who bow down and worship him. He depended on God. He went through the wilderness and he is bringing the promised land. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, the faithful son of God, the true and better Adam, the true and better Israel, everyone will confess that he is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. We thank you that Jesus has passed the test so that we can take hold of all of your promises. We thank you that we can call you Father. We ask that you would help us to walk in the light as you were in the light. That as trials and tests come, you would sustain us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to remain steadfast when tested, remembering that you have a crown of life waiting for all who love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.